Hey, welcome to another episode of Startup Sales. Today we're going to be speaking with David. And David has actually bootstrapped his own company. And he's going to share with us uh, how to pre-sell before you actually launch your product. And it's really amazing. He did a terrific job on this on bringing in a huge audience and getting them to actually buy before the product is ready. So this isn't just for uh, the founders that are listening that uh, are still building their product and and it's also for founders that are later stage because you could implement a lot of these strategies into your current model now. So make sure to take a listen. There's a lot of great insights, a lot of good tips on how to do lead generation in here. And so take a listen and enjoy. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Before we begin with David, uh, if you're an early stage startup and you're struggling to uh, operate your your first phone calls and get your demo done correctly, then at Startup Sales, this is what we do is we help you by creating a simple sales process that's easy to follow for you and your company. And this will actually help you really increase your numbers dramatically from how many people you get into the funnel and how many people go out the funnel on the other side. So that means more clients uh, end up paying you and becoming uh, an onboarding with you. So if you want more information on that, go to startupsales.io. That is startupsales.io. Let's get to today's episode with David. All right, David, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Pleasure to be here. Terrific. Can you give everybody a little bit of background about who you are and and why you're here? Yeah, absolutely. My name is David Abrams. I am one of the co-founders and CEO over at Demio, a webinar platform built for marketers, really built for engagement marketing. Um, Over the past five years, my co-founder and I have uh, bootstrapped this company from the ground up. Uh, No VC, no outside capital, just our own kind of blood, sweat, and tears over the past five years. Uh, Before that, we were both, uh, my co-founder and I were both internet marketers. I had created a couple of agencies uh, doing marketing, marketing funnels, website automation, all kinds of cool stuff. And that rolled into us finding the problem with webinars that, you know, we attacked about, again, five years ago. It took us about two years to get to market, and we've been uh, at the market now for about three years. Wow, terrific. So when you first started this uh, and you're bootstrapped, where, once your product was ready, how did you start selling? Yeah, no, it's a, great, it's a great question. And we actually, we had a lot of time. It took us, like I said, two years to get to market. So during this time, we were marketers and we spent, like the hardest part for us was the building process, like finding the right team members to come in and build this all out. It was heavy technology took a lot of revamps. But during this time, we were constantly thinking about like the pre-launch process. So really one of the winning strategies for us was video marketing at this time. And what we had done is go th- we had gone through and created some animated teaser videos, kind of outlining the design, the layout. We talked about like the value propositions and the pain points that we wanted to solve with our software. And we had like a 30-second teaser, a 60-second teaser. Um, we did a personal video where we had this like white background and we just talked about like 
why webinars were, were changing and what needed to change with webinars. And it had this really nice, peaceful music. And it was like, just a really like thought out kind of pre-roll ad. And we ran this on Facebook and ran these three ads for literally six months and got thousands of likes, hundreds of comments, people like pre-opting in. We created like a static landing page that was very simple but beautiful and kind of outlined the major value propositions with just an opt-in. And we spent this like first kind of year just prepping pre-launch with just getting signups. We built up a pretty big pre-launch audience. Um, when we got a little bit closer to that build out, we also did events where we went on stage and we sold it and we literally created like videos that like outlined what Demio was gonna do, all the value props of it. And we sold it on stage uh, in a pre-launch format where you could get pre-discounts before it ever came out and be like the first ones in. We gave out t-shirts and all this kind of stuff, which was funding for, for the company. Um, but all that to be said was we were really doing a good job of like building this pre-marketing audience. Then when we actually came with the product and went to uh, uh, beta, basically, we did a free beta and we did this to get as many of those uh, opt-ins as we could into the product, get them using the product, learn as much as we could. Uh, we literally even like learned so much that we simplified the product. We cut out like 50% of our product after we built it because we just realized it was too robust, too big, simplified it, just kept learning, kept learning. During this beta process, we kept opening it up to more people in that, in that free audience. And then we were marketing like the free beta out on Facebook as well. So we were getting people directly in on beta through Facebook ads. We were using our like pre-webinar opt-in or our pre-launch opt-in list, uh, which was like, again, like I think it was like 1,500, 2,000 people of like literally interested people. They were using our beta. We brought in over, I think 1,300 beta users during this time. And during this time we were actually like getting on calls with people. Um, selling it directly to them, different package sizes, prepping them for like this game plan. And then three months in, we rolled out to a grand opening launch. Now, this was a faster beta than we actively wanted, but we actually had to roll out because of funding issues. We're like kind of coming to the tail end of our, um, of our, uh, you know, ability to keep paying our engineers. So we're like, okay, we have to do a launch at this point. So we rolled out into a grand opening launch where we offered uh, annualized discounts for our users uh, in a grand opening fashion for seven days. And we've never released discounts like that again. Like if you look at our pricing now, I think it's like a 10th of the price or something like that. But on an annualized fashion where people pay for a year and they still get these discounts, they're grandfathered in all changes. It was just an amazing deal for them. We have a lot of those users still on, but we did that for seven days, which gave us a huge uh, you know, ability to, to continue to push in the, the, the company forward, to fill in the gaps, to continue building the product. Um, but we did that with a, a launch. We used affiliates for that. So we did have, uh, you know, some affiliates coming in to help promote that product. But we really went to our beta customers, right? Like our 1300 beta users, that pre-opt-in list. So all that early stage marketing really gave us the ability to have this kind of momentum. From that, we really then leaned heavily into doing one-on-one -on -one demos and scalable sales calls. And that was really the focus for like the next six months was just like, let's just hit sales calls one-on-one -on -one every day. I like that, be, be on the phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so what kind of discount uh, did you give before launch? I know not that seven day period, but to the people that were pre-launch, uh, you said you were on stage selling and everything. What kind yeah. of discount did you provide? 
Well, I think that was the hardest time for us to figure out discounts because we were so early. We weren't even beta yet. We were so early. We we're like still trying to figure out pricing. So what we did for those customers was we we tried to assume what our pricing was going to be when we went to launch, and we wanted to create a really great discount package for them. But we also wanted to prove like the economic viability of the product. Could we get sales? Could we close based on these value propositions? So we gave really good annualized discounts on that as well. Those customers that we still have from those very early on-stage selling uh, opportunities still have some of the best discounts along with those um, grand opening customers. What we ended up doing was even if like they bought a lower package that ended up pricing differently down the road, we just moved them to our highest package tiers. We gave them more bonuses. We gave them like grandfather discounts. So we really just wanted to make sure that because they bought early, they deserved you know, all the upgrades, everything that comes with it, they just deserved it because they bought in with us early. They believed in us early. And those are the people we wanted to reward the most. Um, from the discount perspective, like from that grand opening and on stage, they were both uh, really, we were trying to think about like maybe making about 50% discounts that they would get annualized. Um, we had no idea that we would go through like seven iterations of pricing, you know, over the next three years. But And we have, because we look at pricing all the time, but uh, they ended up getting amazing deals, probably a lot less than we ultimately imagined those discounts would be. That's terrific. And I think it's important that so many people are afraid to sell something that they don't have. Yeah. And here you are going and saying, hey, we don't have anything, but here's here's what we're going to solve. Here's the problem we're going to solve and, and pay us. <laughs> and you still got clients. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think the big thing is just focusing on what's the value prop. What are you going to be solving for them and how is it going to work? Um, you know, when you're sitting on stage, you also have some of that borrowed credibility from that event as well. And, you know, that's always very helpful. But of course, you're protected from those sales. Like if, you know, we didn't deliver, we would have, you know, refunded all the money and stuff like that. It's not like we were trying to take anyone's money. They were just pre buying into accounts that they were going to get access to early, like we promised them early access and they did. They all got early access, very beginning of the uh, beta period to everything. Um, again, they got all the future discounts, all the future like bonuses and stuff like that. So again, those are the people that you want to double down on the most, right? Like the people that believe in you early. Absolutely. Now you keep talking about value proposition and, and pain points. A lot of the founders that are listening are, are technical founders and, and this guy's kind of goes over over many people's heads like because everybody talks about pain points most people just jump in really shallow mm -hmm. how did you figure out your pain points and where where did you go with that yeah i think for us we were able to listen to the market a little bit we had these pain points when we were marketers building our own kind of agencies and online businesses so we felt our own pain points but we also didn't have to look too far. We went on social media, we went into Facebook groups, we went into forums where other marketers were hanging out and we saw many people vocally expressing their frustration with the platforms that were out there. So in a lot of ways, we saw from the community the pain points that were already there. Um, things happening like recordings going away uh, and crashing, our webinar crashing, you know, not in, in no built out integrations or automations that they needed, things being overly technical and too, um, you know, takes too long to set things up. So we went after those specific things that were articulated. Now, you know, I don't want to, you know, sugarcoat things and, and say that we knew all the pain points and how to present them properly from the beginning. I mean, we've learned over three years what language to use, how to present this, what the major problems are. And all of those things have come from literally being on phone calls, 
doing sales calls, listening to the problems that those users are looking to solve, and then trying to figure out how we can do that. And a lot of that is building out those features or functions, but some of that is just how do we present this to them? What are the things that they're trying to solve? And I think that is the big thing with pain points is like, what is the outcome that your users want? What do they ultimately want? And we use this thing called jobs to be done framework to do that in a lot of ways, but what is the ultimate outcome that they're looking for? How can we get them to that value area? Most of the time they don't really care about, uh, you know, the software, the features, they just want that outcome. They want the va- like the, the value exchange that your software provides. So you have to figure out what those things are and then backtrack like what those features and functions are that do that. And for us, we stopped, I, I, I basically have stopped talking about specific features and functions when I'm talking about Demio and I more talk about an overarching, like this is what Demio will enable you to do. This is how it's gonna help you do that. And of course I can talk about the features and functions, but sometimes those aren't the things that really matter. Things that matter are like, how are you going to get that outcome? And I think what's really important in what you said and like the undertone of what you said is you were on the phone listening and doing the sales calls and learning because if you hire somebody at that early stage, they're not yep. going to be able to pass that information and that understanding off to you as a company. Yep. Exactly. And luckily we started doing that. We were in calls with customers in beta, even like even before that, you know, we were just trying to figure out like what would sell, how do we do this? And one of my takeaways is like talk less on your sales demos, ask more questions and listen more. A lot of times I'll come on to a demo and I'll just be like, I'll, I'll just try to learn about the, like, what is your company? What are you trying to solve with webinars? What are you actively looking to do in your business right now with them? Um, you know, how can I help answer your biggest questions? And those four things really give me good insight into what they're looking to do, what their outcome is, what their goal is. And of course I can talk about specific features and functions, but the goal of that call is just to learn, really to learn, learn, learn. And of course, then we can align how the platform would work for them. But more than anything, this is like a learning opportunity for you and your company. I love it. You have four four core questions that you ask to really dive down and let, let them speak about why they're out here. So many founders will just come out and just push what they have. Here's my feature, A, B, C, D, E, and so on, and not listen to the buyer. Well, I would say I made that mistake a lot in the early days too. I would just come on for a 30-minute demo, show everything that's in the platform, and I just realized that's not what people want when they come on. They want that conversation. They're there to you know, ask their questions. They have specific use cases in their mind of how that all works within their kind of workflow. And it's bad, you know, to get on that call and just shove, you know, all these features and functions down their throat when, you know, maybe they only need one or two of them. Yeah. I think a really good question to ask that, that fits, you might have to rephrase it depending on what you're selling, but what, what are you wanting to achieve? What, what was your purpose of coming on this call? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, I love and that. that will open up the door to so much Instead of you trying to sell them something that they don't need or sell them based on features that they don't even care about, uh, that opens the door widely. Yeah. And I would say even I've, I've done demos and I still do. Like we still do a lot of sales calls ourselves, me and my co-founder. We've done over like 5,000, I think at this point or, or something close to that. It's been crazy. But, you know, I'll definitely, you know, just make sure that we're fit. And if we're not, I'll help try to find other platforms that are, or I'll recommend others that are like, I don't want to force you into my platform. If it's not going to give you the value, the best customers are the ones that will get value that are getting their problems solved with our platform. And if we're not that it's okay, I'm not forcing sales. I'm not trying to hit a quota. 
I just want to help users find the right platform that gives them the most value. Absolutely. I think that's the the best and right mindset to have. And with that mindset, you'll you'll close more more people because you're authentic and you're not you're not coming through as a pushy salesperson. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. So you're still doing sales to this day from time to time. Why? Quite honestly, you know, one, I would say because we're bootstrapped, we're really focused on um, scaling, you know, our business with the revenue that comes in. I think we want to reinvest a lot of the new revenue that comes in into things like engineering, marketing, increasing our inbound quality of inbound leads, uh, support team, which to us, our support team has been like our number one growth factor from day one is just providing amazing support, which I know sounds very easy and obvious to do, but you know, having a team that's there 24 seven under five minute response times, we train really hard on the voice and tone and how to actively help our customers across the board. But it also is because we want to have our fingers on the pulse, right? We want to be able to talk to our customers. We're not that big of a company. We're only 14 people. So it's not like we have this huge company and I'm spending all my day, you know, with, um, executives or something like that, right? I have to say like from our size, it's still an appropriate thing for me to do. Talk with our customers some of the day, you know, talk with our team, stuff like that. I love that you said that customer support is is so important and the, one of the biggest factors in your growth. And I, this is one of my pet peeves when working with companies is, you know, a customer comes in and has a problem and, oh, it's a Friday night. I'll, I'll get to them on Monday. Or, you know, these long delayed times. And I think it's so vital. And this is when I've been selling and closing enterprise deals for a company that just launched their product. One of the things that makes the chances of you closing them the biggest is that customer support. And they just know that there's somebody there to talk to. Mm -hmm. So I love that you say that you have five minute response time. It's it's vital for a company of any size. Well, I'll say right now we're getting a huge influx because the world is changing. This We're recording this in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic. And I think a lot of businesses are flocking to online platforms, video conferencing. So we're seeing a huge surge and we're trying to ramp up to hold this volume. And we're no longer able to do five-minute response times right now. We're still trying to deliver the best support that we can and be there consistently for our customers. But on a normal day, yes, five-minute response times, kind of under that sometimes. But quite honestly, our goal isn't about quantity or speed. It is about quality. We want to be there to give you great responses to help you through your setup process, through your onboarding, um, through any problems that you have. We just want you to feel trusted. And I think when we first sat down to build a company, we said, what are some things that we could bet on that we don't think would ever go away or that people would never want? So we want to be as reliable as possible. People will never want you know, a less reliable platform. Um, people will never want less quality of support, right? Or not, people will never want, you know, a more complicated product. Um, so we try to build based on those value systems. And with that, we've really kind of built our culture around that. So customer support was a big thing. And it's crazy though. Like we look at our testimonials, we look at our referrals and so many of them are like Demio's customer support has been great or, you know, like a testimony of just specifically calling out representatives or how they felt working with our customer platform, even when they're, you know, churning because they're no longer doing events or they no longer need our platform, they'll be like, I recommend people all the time to come check you guys out because of your customer support and your platform. 
And that's just such a cool thing to see is that something as simple as that, that most companies or a lot of companies at least like to overlook like the power of customer support can become one of your biggest growth drivers. Especially in the early days, because if people are happy with you and have that connection and feel like they're being heard and listened to, they'll be more lenient when it comes to bugs in the system. 100% absolutely. I think that's how we kept so many of those grand opening customers in the early days when we were like still very you know, raw, young, just coming out of beta. I literally was in the support desk every day personally handling tickets all day long until we could build out that, that actual support team. Um, and I did that for about a year, uh, seeing that desk. And I think, you know, just personally seeing that, you know, one of the co-founders was talking to them, that they had someone there whenever they needed, that we would be able to connect with engineering. They were way more lenient to stay even through everything. Cause when you're very, very early, you know, you still have a lot of rough edges that you have to smooth out. And it's back to what you said about keeping your finger on the pulse of sales. It's the same with support is you, you understand then what problems they're having. And not only that, if you're the salesperson, you're, you're also understand, okay, where do people typically fall at? And then you mm -hmm. can correct that during the sales process. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And we've started to do more and more like analysis of our support conversations. Where are the problems at? And we analyze those problems um, over every month and then how much that could affect revenue, what changes we need to make from our engineering and product perspective to address those problems. We also look at, uh, like you mentioned, um, you know, the feedback and stuff that people have. Do we need to change our product roadmap? Do we need to change directions? Is pricing too much of an issue? So we utilize this as like the gateway for, for all of the, the major choices that we have to make. Um, and I think it's just such a valuable part of your business. You mentioned before uh, something called the jobs to be done framework. What is yes. that? Yes. Jobs to be done framework is a framework we got from When Kale and Coffee Compete, a really great book. I think it's a free PDF online. You can probably link to it. Um, but that's where we learned about it. And jobs to be done helps you organize the actual use cases of your platform. It's like the best way to say it. Like for us, when we're looking through different product ideas and feature requests, we're looking at what is the job this person is trying to get done with the outcome. And so we're starting to design the product thought processes, the user experience around what they're trying to get done instead of around a feature or function. A lot of times people will use jobs to be done frameworks to also create demographic profiles or customer avatar, customer persona builds uh, based on what those people are trying to do. It's no longer about like my customer is a, you know, 40 to 50 male in the United States, my customer is someone who is trying to accomplish this goal. They're trying to solve X problem. They're doing this when they are feeling this way. So it's a much more broken down understanding of like the actual use cases and how they want to use that. And that'll help you think deeper into um, the actual product builds for product marketing, how you talk about your product to your customers, when they need to know about that problem and all that kind of stuff. I think it's fantastic because it's also getting to know the pain points better because you're understanding this client, you're putting yourself in their shoes. Exactly. And it helps with the messaging uh, and how you communicate as well from emails and everything. Yep, exactly. Yeah, totally. What, what was the name of the book again? 
So we found it in when coffee and kale compete. I'm sure it's been talked about in a ton of different formats and books and stuff like that, but uh, that's how my co-founder and I have uh, stumbled upon it. I'm writing that down now. That's no, a good one to release. It was a great one. All right, so... <clears throat> so with all this done and coming from bootstrapped and and communicating i want to kind of switch over a little bit to marketing not too much into marketing because this is a sales podcast but i'm curious as to how you got this set up and and on a high level and how you did the marketing and how that correlates into the sales yeah, I think, again, one of the things that we leaned into heavily along this process was the value of patience, the value that outside of your product, your business is also a product. And by doing that, we knew that with patience, we could fine tune things along the way. We could do something and make it better and better and better. And one of those things was like the marketing process. What is that going to look like? Should we, you know, spend money right now on advertising in the early days, which we didn't have a lot of, that was mostly runway for our employees, or do we build into long-term organic initiatives that we can refine over time and just get better at and make a better process? So we started to lean into those long-term methods. For us, that was referrals, so word of mouth, and that came from product um, and came from ease of use, the customer experience, um, it came from specific things like the webinar itself and, and what happens after the room is over, like when a webinar is over, what happens, you know, is our logo in the different areas of the product. So there was like some product virality that was built in. Um, we built on an affiliate program early so that affiliates that not only launched with us during the, the grand opening, uh, other affiliates could come on afterwards as well. We put a lot of time into blog content, blog syndication and long-term things. So now we're doing big posts like, um, you know, um, new research posts, long lists, really understanding what other SaaS webinars are looking like and doing like full breakdowns, diagnose, uh, you know, their webinar process to give as much new statistical information as we could. Um, we've done things like build our podcast out. So, you know, we spent years building a podcast for that specific demographic, but all of these things are about long-term, long-term marketing initiatives that really, uh, focused on every month getting bigger and bigger, getting better and better. We're finding ways to improve those month over month. We pretty much shied away from things like pay-per-click, um, paid media, um, you know, short-term initiatives, launches, stuff like that. We did a summit last year, which was a great initiative with Strategic Partners. I think Strategic Partners has been a big piece of everything we've done since day one. But that in itself could take you six months to build out like just one project with a strategic partner. Um, so that being said, we have leaned heavily on, you know, these things to kind of grow over time, keeping that patience mindset that we know these things will grow over time if we continue to build into them. Um, and they have for us month over month, everything has grown. So we see, you know, growth of month over month. And as we grow our organic and virality processes continue to just expand. And I think that's been our biggest kind of influx for, organic traffic, that's where we see these inbound leads coming in for demos. And we're now playing with um, 
a software use proof. Um, they have a personalization platform and we're now trying to personalize our website. So specific segments of that inbound audience sees a different version of our website. And we're trying to get the um, visitors that hit our website to have the closest ideal customer profile to who we want to talk to. We allow them to see a button to schedule a demo for everyone else we push directly into trials. And we've worked really hard to optimize our trials and our onboarding processes to be very smooth, to, you know, to be kind of a self-service, to showcase the product. Like we have a simulated webinar for people that come in on the trial. So a lot of this stuff kind of like makes it hands off from the sales process, except now for our ICP, we've really worked hard to be like, where do we find qualifications for the people that we talk to? And as that has grown our demo numbers have stayed static because if we just gave demos to everyone, we would need salespeople, like you said. We would need a full team to handle that influx. If we like only did sales through calls or only through one-on-ones, yes, we'd have to have a sales team, but so much of our traffic converts to the trial to paid plans or just directly to paid plans with our 30-day guarantee that we really try to talk to the people that we can learn the most from, that mean the most from us. So um, a lot of the marketing to your point has been how do we refine these long-term initiatives to find the right customer types? How do we attract our ICP in the best ways? And when you're talking about your ICP, did you go very, very narrow or very wide? When we first started, we went as wide as you could be. We were like, anyone that wants a platform is our customer. Uh, and a huge mistake to make, obviously, um, and something that we learned you know, painfully over the years as we try to figure out what made us different, how we marketed ourselves, how we talked about ourselves. I think now we've definitely found that very unique segment that we want to go after, uh, mid-market SaaS companies really being kind of that, that target focus for us. We want to be an engagement marketing platform for them. So like having the features and functions that we know that they need is like, that's now our roadmap. We know who to talk to. We know how to attract them. We, we're, you know, our podcast is built for SaaS marketers. Our content is geared towards SaaS. Like everything is now directed towards this audience. That being said, when you have a platform that's very wide range of use cases and has a lot of different customers coming in, we still have all these flywheels and referrals coming in from every industry every niche, every type of customer you can imagine. And, and that's again where we rely on that self-service mechanism to take place. All those customers can still come in, get trials, they can still purchase accounts, but that's not who we're in marketing and sales necessarily trying to convert. Yeah, because when you're focused, you, you'll get a lot more traction quicker when you're, when you're focused on who, who you're going after. And exactly. you still take the other business when it comes, but you're not chasing everybody. Exactly, exactly. And that's what we did at first. We were just like, we're all over the place. And from the product perspective, it was what features are most important? What do we listen to? Who do we listen to? How do we talk to them the right way? And when you're so wide, you have no, you have like no ability to just figure out how to cut things down, to be precise, to do things quickly. You're just kind of all over the place, like you said. What, what would you say are the, the top like five tips for SaaS founders for running webinars and how to make them effective? Mm, five tips for SaaS founders to run effective webinars. Well, this is a whole, a whole podcast in itself. I think we could talk about <laughs> webinars. But so, I would so let's focus on one then. Okay, one. Well, I would say the big thing is 
figure out what your goal line is. What are you trying to accomplish with this webinar? Because webinars can be used in so many use cases. Is this is your goal to attract new leads? Are you trying to drive sales? Are you trying to drive pipeline and demand generation? Are you looking to onboard your users? Are you looking to reduce churn, right? So like think through what your overall goal is. Then when you're building out your actual webinar, you want to find, again, to use the word that we talked about before, the pain point that those users are going through and build your webinar around that. You want to solve some pain for them. Give them some extreme value add during this time together. They're exchanging their time for something else. So even if you're doing a sales webinar and you're pushing for sales, you want to make sure that they're coming on and getting something solved for them. Some problem that they have right now Give them a solution because that will help you to build a very strong registration page with really good copy and you know a good value prop. That'll help you get a higher show up rate to that webinar, help you have a higher stick rate on that webinar, help you have a higher you know close rate, whether you're doing you know one-on-one sales after that webinar is over. If you're selling them directly on that webinar, you gotta find the things that's gonna attract them. Figure out what is that problem that they need to hear about that you can solve for them and, and give them that value add throughout that webinar. Wow. Very good tip. And I think we'll, we'll probably have to do a round two and, and talk just about the other webinar tips. Sure. Absolutely. Cool. David, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing. I, there was a, a lot of information to take in here. How can people find out more about uh, Demio and more about you? Yeah, absolutely. Head over to uh, demio.com. We do have intercom live chat on there. You can come reach out to our team, uh, say hello on that support messaging. You can reach out uh, to our team and even call me and request David. I'll come jump into that chat and and talk to you. And um, you know, appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. If you are looking for us on Twitter or Facebook, it's forward slash meet demio. So pretty easy, meet demio. Um, for me, I am on LinkedIn, David Abrams uh, on LinkedIn. Outside of that, that's pretty pretty much the best way to get in contact with me. Perfect, David. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you as well. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io.